Luke chapter 9. Now, do you know me? It's like, what is that iconic album? Is it Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? Or is it Graceland's? Is it Revolver? Is it Highway 61 Revisit It? Is it Astral Weeks? Yeah, probably always Astral Weeks because it was some of it's in Belfast. What those artists who come up with one piece of work and a catalogue of work that stands out from all the rest. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 for me seems to be a wee bit of uh, Luke's Sergeant Pepper or when I told Paul that the computer wouldn't open the sermon, he said, just give them the hits. I think Luke was just, here's a chapter of the hits. Um, he sends out the 12, first real mission happening right there in Luke 9. He feeds 5,000, which is incidental really to Peter declaring him the Messiah. That's a major part of Luke's account of the Gospels or any account of the Gospels or any account of who this Jesus is. Then he predicts his death. And they're a bit confused by that. Then we have this transfiguration where Paul was saying he put on these glasses so as everybody would see things differently. Certainly things were seen differently. Then they come down off that mountain and there's a healing of a possessed boy he predicts his death another time. And then there's the Samaritan opposition. And then at the end, there's those lines that are familiar again about the people who want to follow him. But Jesus is actually asking how sincere they really are about those, um, that following. And right there in the middle of it, well, near the end of it, in verse 51, is maybe the key to the whole gospel according to Luke which we have followed. One of our recent Lent studies, we went through the travel narratives of Luke from uh, chapter 9 and verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then we get 10 chapters of travel narrative that's unique to Luke, but it starts right here in maybe his best chapter or album, Luke chapter 9. If we want to think about the passages that I wish I was preaching on this morning rather than maybe the one in Luke 9 that I am, there's one of my favorite. Maybe, I don't know, Romans 12 is up there with the most I preached on, obviously John 10. Um, but Luke chapter 9, um, where Jesus is with the disciples and he says to them, who do the crowds say that I am? And some say, or uh, Elijah, John the Baptist, um, back from the dead. And Jesus says, no, 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 well, forget about what the crowds are saying. What about you, John, James, Peter? What about you? Who do you say that I am? You are God's Messiah. God's Messiah. You are the Christ. Or in verse 23, coming out of that, where Jesus is speaking to them about his death and about his identity, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. I've preached in that a lot. I bring that in most Sunday mornings. Or then that line after it, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the world and lose or forfeit their very self? Another 
hit single of quotations from Luke chapter 9. And right at the end, interestingly, uh, in the memoir I've been writing with Trevor Stevenson, still writing it, but it's nearly finished. This verse was so important to him and all that he was doing while he was in Uganda with Fields of Life. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9 is filled with all kinds of amazing stuff, hit single texts that have been preached and preached. And right in the middle of it, we have this transfiguration that Aaron read for us earlier and that Paul wonderfully tried to talk to one-and-a-half-year-olds about. Hard enough talking to adults about transfiguration without trying to do it with, uh, with children. This almost psychedelic, certainly apocalyptic moment in Jesus' ministry. One commentator sent us on the way of Jan Carson, an up-and-coming uh, Belfast novelist who uh, used to be one of our students in Derivolgi after that, even worked with us in Derivolgi. I'm going to claim that when she gets her Booker Prize. Magic realism. Magic realism. Something that's other, but that says something into the reality of who we are. What is going on in the transfiguration? Jesus has just got Peter to declare who he is. He's just started to talk about his cross. And suddenly it's as if to confirm that, God comes back a little bit like he did in the baptism and speaks out of this cloud to these three disciples who get the opportunity to be in this mountain. A thin place. A thin place. I've spoken about thin places before where the veil between earth and heaven seems to be so thin that you almost can sense that you're in heaven. We get those moments rarely, but thankfully in my life there's been one or two where you just feel that the barrier between you and God, the barrier between this life and something other and transcendent and what we hope for, there's a thin veil. I used to think it might have been George MacDonald that coined the phrase and then somebody quoted C.S. Lewis and used the phrase, but as I looked it up this week, it seems to be something from uh, an Irish, maybe Celtic Christianity, and they said it maybe came with a brogue. And then I started to get concerned that it was a, a tin place and it had nothing to do with thin place at all, that it had to do with maybe uh, huts and the outskirts of most African shanty towns. Uh, the thin place between heaven and earth. The disciples are in one of these thin, thin places. As if it wasn't always pretty thin when you were walking around with Jesus all of the time. God's declaring that this is his son. And actually you do see the similarities between what Aaron was reading and what Kim read then from the Old Testament. Now I had been out of antibiotics and I'd had my surgery done and I was back to full fettle. I might have even went on the uh, Exodus chapter of this and tried to bring some of the stuff in that we learned in our literacy. But at the end of the day, the old creativity lost it and we were back into what we were most familiar with of transfiguration. You can be familiar with it all. But it would seem to me that as we read those two things, We've got the Ten Commandments 
and there's some kind of sign that the people are given that this is God has endorsed these Ten Commandments. So Moses comes down the mountain and his face is radiant because he's with God. He's been in the thinnest place of all. There's some sense of this is of importance. And because of its importance, there's a sign that's going to happen that's going to help you understand the importance of the Ten Commandments. And maybe Luke saying the importance of Peter's declaration that this is the Christ needs the same kind of sign. And that's all very well and good, but I was looking for some sort of application to this for the people in Fitzroy and the visitors we have from wherever you're from this morning. What is happening in this uh, transfiguration, in these few verses in Luke chapter 9, that we might take something from? And so what I picked up as I looked at it were just who is in the picture, who's on this mountain. Who's on this mountain? God's very clearly on this mountain, the way that God was on the mountain when we got the Ten Commandments through Moses. God's presence is very real on the mountain, even though the disciples and our snoozy emoji, emoji were, were having a wee bit of a snooze and had to come too. Well, they always seemed to be snoozing when Jesus was praying, and that was the reason they were on the mountain to start with. But they were waking, three disciples were there. So we have God on the mountain, and we have three pretty key disciples, Peter, John, and James. If you look at the books that are written uh, through the rest of the New Testament, you will see that these are the disciples that are pretty crucial to the play. So what I caught on pretty early on as I tried to unpack this in the realism terms, if I took some of the magic out of it for a moment, was we have... Jesus and Peter and John and James, there's the New Testament pretty much laid out for as well. We obviously don't have Paul at this stage, but that has to come a bit later on. But if we look at who's writing the letters and the gospel of Jesus is there, the letters of the New Testament are there. And then we find that Moses, and I was told in the Old Testament he would never get to the promised land, so maybe I don't know what that means about what mountain they're up at this point. But we have Moses and we have Elijah. So we have the law and the prophets. So in this gathering up this mountain that might not be as random as all of that at some stage, we find that we have Jesus and his disciples in the moment, and the moment is that they've just finally got some sense of his identity, not that they would hold to that for long because there's crises ahead where if they really believe that, maybe things would be different, but do they really believe that? But they're coming to some sense that this is not just some rabbi that walked past them on the sea and told them to follow him, that this guy, there's something about him that's more than the average rabbi, that there might be something divine and indeed he might be the Messiah long waited for the Christ. So it's in the moment of that but in the moment of that, there's something that's necessary for us to be what God wants us to be or where God wants us to learn. We have Peter, James, and John in some sense representing the early church. And we have Moses and Elijah that's telling us it doesn't start with the early church, that there's some tradition going back through an Old Testament of law and prophets. And we've gathered them all around the Jesus of the gospel and God's right there in the presence of it. And it seems to me that what we might have here, and there's not much transfiguration this morning, no offense to any of you, but something of where we gather 
to get some sign from God or some strength from God or some sense of the presence of God. Oh, God's with us all the time. And God's with me where I find the thinnest place, which is in that beach in Bally Castle looking out at Rathlin or at the Fair Head or wherever else. Or God might be with you where your thinnest place is. But in some senses, again, I think we're reminded here that when we want the holistic, when we want to be where and, and nourished and where God is, we have an Old Testament, we have a New Testament, we have the tradition of our faith, we have the moment of our faith, we have the God of our faith who is declaring to us the entire time, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, do what he tells you. There's something about the church gathering together under the tradition of the scriptures and listening to the law and the prophets and the gospels and the letters, and that out of that, we hear God's voice speaking to us. But here's the key. We don't stay here. Now, sadly, in my 10 years of ministry in Fitzroy, nobody has ever said on a Sunday morning, here, this is so good. Let's set up a few wee huts and we'll stay here for the rest of the time. Sadly, too often, far too early, you are dying to get back out there to see the football or to eat your lunch or to go for a cycle or climb a mountain or two before tea time. But there's something going on here where it's good for the people of God to be in a space with God and the scriptures and what we need to know and it's a good place to be. Peter thought it was a great place to be. And in some ways I thought maybe Peter was trying to escape from going back down the mountain when he suggested they would stay. But I think actually he was just being a hoarder like the rest of us are hoarders. He needed to get rid of his 40 bags in Lent. And one of the things he needed to make sure was that he didn't hoard his lovely experience of God because actually what I think we learn here is it's not about Peter's lovely experience of God. It's not about James's lovely experience of God. It's not about John's lovely experience of God. Oh, they have a lovely experience of God. Oh, and they're in a thin place where they think they're as close to God as they'll ever be in all of their lives. But to stay in the thin place where God is closest to us might not be, and I would suggest is not the place that we're all most needed to be. We need to come back down the mountain where a demon-possessed boy breaks the thinness and the transfiguration, where the disciples and the people show their absolute disbelief and unbelief again, and Jesus gets a wee bit of a rage at them. They have to come back down into the reality of a broken world because that is what we are called into. We're not called to escape from the world. We're not called that we might hoard spiritual experiences of ourselves in the world. We are called that we might do what Jesus did, which is going back a few verses in Luke's brilliant chapter 9 and saying, we've got to follow him, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and do the things that Jesus did. And Jesus came to serve and we are saved to serve. We're not saved to hoard up lovely spiritual experiences. We're not saved to hoard up moments that we're close to God even. We're saved in order that we would serve God 
in the world that God calls us into. Don't want to be too controversial. It's not over controversial in Fitzroy, but modern worship at times for me may just a wee bit be about the spiritual experience. Let's have 40 minutes of this one song repeated. Sorry, I'm being over cynical. I'm being over cynical. But that experience that's created in that modern form of worship, to me, might be a wee bit of a hoarding of our spiritual experience. Oh, look how close to God we are. Sometimes it feels to me that it's a little bit of a cul-de-sac for a Sunday. We sing to God. God gives us an experience. We sing to God. God gives us an experience. And there's nothing else to it other than the experience. And that's lovely. And Peter and James and John have the experience. But it's not where they're supposed to stay. It's not even where they're supposed to come back to regularly as the rest of the Gospels go on. We don't need a cul-de-sac for spiritual experiences on a Sunday. We need Sundays to be a highway into Monday morning. Colin was getting at it in an incredibly short interview where he talked about the word that he's learning in the Bible literacy, meeting where he works on a Monday morning. That is spiritual experience. That is what transfiguration is about, I think. Where we come around the scriptures, where we come together around the scriptures, but it's not for us to hoard, but it's for us to give away as we serve other people in a broken world for the rest of the week. Let me finish with a quote from another intern, another book-writing intern. Not all of them have written books, but some of them are feeling a little bit inferior because two out of the 15 or 12 or so have from chaplaincy days. Justin Zerati um, is not from Akhafatan, as you can tell, um, from uh, California, um, went home after a South Africa trip and set up these numbers of faces, which is an amazing um, NGO that um, after sitting having coffee with two students or two people who could never possibly be students in South Africa, one of our trips, um, because they would never have the money to be able to achieve that, uh, Justin went home and decided he would start the NGO that would send those guys to college. And Anda, one of those guys, was the first graduate of these numbers of faces. Eventually, it's grown into uh, a few countries in Africa, not just South Africa. And Justin wrote a book about that and his experience of that that came out last summer. Ken Humphreys is featured in it. Mornington's featured in it. A lot of his experience of learning this stuff was here in Belfast. But he came up with this and the next time I'm having coffee with Justin, which isn't often uh, because he's in Portland, Oregon, and I'm not, um, I want to ask him, is this really his? Because if this is his, fair play to you, brother. This is brilliant. This is really brilliant. This is his description, I think, of who we should be tomorrow as we come out of the highway, of, as we break out of the highway of Sunday into our Monday service, and it might not wait to Monday. Some of us may be serving within the next half hour or hour. He says this, I envision the work of the Lord 
as gigantic heavenly wheels rotating over the earth. They roll around, scrubbing up the darkness, mowing down injustice, and building up shaky structures of redemption and renewal. Put in motion centuries ago, the wheels are relentless vessels of creativity and disruption. The greatest opportunity of our lives are when you're invited to ride on the wheels for certain seasons. We may join with God for one or two rotations and then shift off so that others can hop on when our time is up. Transfiguration is not a cul-de-sac. Transfiguration is where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured so that they would be reconfigured into being servants who would follow Jesus into creativity and disruption, to mowing down injustice, scrubbing up darkness, and building shaky structures of redemption and renewal. And if, if every Sunday morning people came after the service and said, don't want to stay here, you're right, but I want to get out there and get on the wheels of God's gigantic heavenly wheel, then Fitzroy, we've done what Transfiguration did in Luke 9 at least once a week together as a family. Let's pray together. Lord, we come into your presence with fellow believers like John and James and Peter. We come with the scriptures this morning reading about Moses up mountains, the disciples up mountains. We come into your presence with the scriptures, with the story of salvation, and with each other. And Lord, they always should be reasonably thin places, but they're not places for us to hoard our spiritual experiences. They're here so that, as Colin was sharing with us, once you hit work tomorrow, that you can apply, you can be Jesus you can ride on these gigantic wheels of redemption rotating across the earth. Lord, may we do that today for your glory and honor. Amen.